Dr. Deirdre Lundy is a GP who has a special interest in women's health and who has led really like the revolution in women's health when it comes to contraception and most recently the menopause in Ireland and she's recently set up Ireland's first menopause clinic in the National Maternity Hospital uh, in Ireland um, and is really a celebrity in Ireland amongst doctors but actually amongst the public um, and recently has really caught the mood of the public in she has spearheaded a campaign to really increase awareness uh, on menopause in Ireland um, and well, firstly she's taught me everything that I know about women's health and the menopause but secondly <laughs> is an all around legend of a person as well um, and if there's one thing I would say about Deirdre is she makes learning fun um, but she also yeah. makes learning about women's health and the menopause fun so she's just an all around incredible person who has changed the lives of more women in Ireland than I think any other person in the world and that is that is the, the yeah, God's so. honest truth no Deirdre it is true um, that's so funny it's, tr- it's so true I don't know how many times I've sat in in, in, in classes uh, and Deirdre has has again blown my mind with the amount of knowledge that she's given me which then not only me but for other GPs you've the effect that you've had has been incredible because what you've done is educate GPs the length and breadth of the country in Ireland which has benefited women the length and breadth of the country so it's been huge you're, um, you're very kind I think it comes we're a teaching family all my brothers and sisters my mother my father we all have teaching in our background because um, personally, I think it's because we all have ADHD and we get bored so easy that if we're not having fun, we're bored. We're looking at our phones. So we have to try to keep it entertaining, you know? Oh, yeah. But, but, and you do yeah. that so effectively. But, but myself and Kira, who I work with, um, we're just talking about this maybe two or three weeks ago. And, and Kira is really passionate about the menopause. And she said, look, Matt, I think it's really important that we cover this topic. And I said, look, the, the best person in the world to talk to you about the menopause is Deirdre and what I think is really interesting Deirdre is Kira is is really in tune with the menopause so whether she's doing an asthma review with the patient uh, or a blood pressure check she asks all of the female patients that come in do, do they have menopause symptoms and it's actually been incredible Kira because what we've found is that a lot of women who maybe wouldn't normally volunteer their symptoms have really kind of spoken to Kira. I mean that that's true Kira, isn't it? Just that simple raising awareness thing has been incredible. You're very kind. You do speak very nicely of me when um when everyone else is listening. Um I mean, yeah, I do talk to everyone about the menopause because um it it's 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 impacting everybody. It, it's either um I mean, for if I'm talking to someone at an asthma review, yeah, of course we're going to talk about their asthma and what their asthma's doing for them, but while we're there, let's just touch on like holistically how they are. And let's talk about that elephant in the room a lot of the time, you know, we don't talk about menopause, do we? It's not um it's not a sexy conversation. People don't talk yeah. about it. So and I think if you're um if you're a woman, um or if you're assigned female at birth and and you are going through menopause problems, perimenopause problems you've probably been dragging yourself through treacle for quite some time and you've probably naturally had to put so many people in front of you that it's hard to find that 15 minutes to come in and speak to a healthcare professional. So these busy women who are running families and um, working full time and running households and dealing with other health conditions that they've got as well, it's hard to find and make that time for yourself. So mm. it's it's a, it's an opportunity yeah. to grab people before they go and say, just wait a minute, mm. is, how's, is this affecting you? Is this an issue for you? And 
And dear, did sure. you, you led, I mean, you, you kind of changed the narrative in Ireland around the menopause maybe six months ago. And I mean, it hit headlines for, for weeks, which has had a massive impact on a huge number of women in Ireland. Could you just explain to us what happened and how that came about? Yeah, of course. Um, there, over the past 20 years, since that unfortunate study from the United States came out that implied that through HRT, you somehow were going to create new breast cancers for yourself. Ever since then, the demand for um, help during the menopause really kind of bottomed out. And so a lot of family doctors had de-skilled when it came to helping women at the time of the menopause because nobody was willing to try any of the treatments. Now, I prescribed before that study, during that study, and after that study because myself and a lot of other experienced women's health doctors looked at the merits of that study and said, oh, for the love of Mike, like that that doesn't make, that means nothing to me. It's, you know, but the rest of the nation, like like the United Kingdom and other parts of, of the world, it just disappeared off the, off the shelves, you know. So people had started back in 2015 the National Institute of Clinical Healthcare Excellence, NICE, started saying, lads, we are really letting menopausal patients down. There are so many things we can do for them. Um, HRT does not cause breast cancer. That wasn't coming anyway. And there's no reason on earth why they should be so fearful of it, nor should you as prescribers. And so slowly things started to improve. And I started to notice a slight uptick in the patients seeking me out. But what was happening is what were, was patients were taking the NICE guidelines into their family doctor saying, look, this is what's wrong with me. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And the GPs were saying, no, I'm not experienced. That stuff gives you breast cancer. I don't want to get involved. So people were going from Billy to Jack looking for somebody to help them, and they were getting nowhere. So a support group was formed by a lady called Sally Ann Brady in, in, in Dublin. And she has thousands and thousands of menopausal patients that follow her on Instagram and they give each other tips and advice. And basically, they petitioned the popular radio, lunchtime radio show, Duffy Liveline, to sort of listen to our stories. You can't believe this is common sense medicine. It should be core curriculum for general practice. And yet when we go into the GP, we're being told oh, you know, go take a nap or wear a light top or something. Um, no discussion about my heart, no discussion about my bones or my poor vagina or, you know, the future of my, my general well-being, my heart. So they got one radio show dedicated to the menopause. That's all it was planned to be. And then the phones just crashed. Women from all over Ireland, Irish women who listen to Irish radio abroad were ringing in from America, from Australia, from all over the place saying, oh, my God, the same thing happened to me. Well, it went crazy. And for days, I think it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So for six consecutive days, this is not a a women's health. This is a this is (laughs) you know what Joe Duffy is. Joe Duffy is not a women's health focused radio yeah, it's show. The biggest radio show in the country. Yeah, and it's and it's it's you know for in rural Ireland and up a mountain and on a tractor and everyone listens to Joe Duffy after lunch. But for them to dedicate six consecutive days to literally nothing else but menopause was just unheard of and they had to do that. They felt they had to do that in good conscience because the amount of calls they were getting were just unprecedented. There was no other topic drove the phones the way menopause did. So I somebody texted me to say they're talking about you on Joe Duffy. 
So I thought, oh, cripe, what have I said now, you know? And then um, I listened to the playback the evening and I said, oh, that's good. Somebody said, everyone told me go away until I met Deirdre and then Deirdre gave me medicine and everything got better. So I thought, okay, that's okay. And then I ignored it. And then they come back to me to say, will you answer some phone calls? And then it still wouldn't go away. So then they said, will you just come into the studio? We'll do one whole program with you sitting opposite Joe um, where you answer live calls and then that'll be the end of it. So that's how we finished it off on the on the when the last Wednesday. But never in the history of Irish radio has one topic mm. uh, consumed the imagination. I was amazed. Like I, I love menopause. I love talking about menopause, but I was getting a bit cheesed off towards the end of that week, you know. <laughs> but I mean I it was discussed in, in the National Parliament at home. I mean it became the most talked about thing for those weeks and it became a political issue. It was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, it's beautiful in a way. It just shows women's voices are finally being heard. Um, I don't. And also, I think women weren't as as kind of noisy as they were before. Now people are saying, oh, hell no. I'm not going to spend half of my life feeling like this just because you're too lazy to read a publication, you know, and I think God bless them. And I love a patient comes in well researched. Now, not Google rubbish like it's got to be good you know, guidelines and all the rest of it. But, I, you know, come in with your list, come in with your research and, and, and we'll talk because I love it and I'm not threatened by it, you know. And I suppose what we wanted to do today was to talk about some of those common misconceptions, sure. uh, Deirdre, because it, like, it, it, as you said, there are so many misconceptions and there are huge barriers even today yeah. for women to present themselves. And I think I mean, that's one of the things Kira has always spoken about in that 90% of the time women say, well, I can't have HRT because. Yeah, and yeah. that's still the problem. Myself and Kira had this conversation just yesterday. I mean, you come across that every day, Kira. Sure. So, I mean, that is a problem, isn't it? Because, um, like you said, Dr. Lund, you know, pe- people are... Um, People are going to see their doctor and they talk about um, how they're feeling. They talk about their menopause sometimes. Not not everyone talks about it. But those that do are often told it's a natural process or, you know, there's some there's some degree that you just have to put up with it. Um, yeah. We're not, we're not, not every clinician out there is as up to date as they could be. And, yeah. and um, we're so lucky here because we have such well-trained GPs, you know, they, they, they've they got fantastic knowledge and we're, we're very lucky to have such a, a high standard of care here. But certainly there's something missing there. And what what do our women do when they go to see their trusted GP? They're not offered something that um, that they should be. They're not offered yeah. the, the HRT that, that could work for them. Um, and, and then what? Because also for me, um, as a nurse... I don't want to impact negatively on the doctor-patient relationship in any way, but yeah. I find myself having to speak these words for these women a little bit and advocate for them and be a little bit annoying and make that noise on their behalf. Well, you have sometimes. to. You have to advocate for your patient. Well, I have no problem um, undermining other people's relationships <laughs> with their GP if their GP is full of crap. So you have to know your Amen. stuff, you know? <laughs> 
I'm not a big fan. I got, I got some GPs who like me. I got some GPs over here who really don't like me. And I understand that. I, and I accept that because it's like our lives are so difficult. Your, your lives in general practice, my life in general practice, an absolute nightmare. Mm-hmm. There's enough hours in the day, days in the week to get through the work that's out there. We're grossly underfunded. Mm-hmm. It's a whole, whole nother show. But we have to keep up. We can't go into that surgery without current information. It's unconscionable. Mm. And yet it happens to women when it comes to like hormone stuff seems to scare people so bad. It's actually not that difficult. My, I always say to the trainees that if you've ever prescribed a pill, you've potentially put someone way more exposed to risk than you ever will with HRT. So if you're a comfortable contraception prescriber, do not, there is no excuse for you not to be good at menopause HRT. Sure, sure. I can totally see how um, you ended up talking about this for days and days and days on RT. I feel like we can do do that. You've got such incredible energy. I love it. I mean, I don't, I don't quite know what, what to follow that with. I, but I mean, it, it amazes me actually. I, I'll just say this: I, I, I really, I'm, um, very respectful of all my colleagues. But it amazes me that you know we wouldn't dream of working in general practice without being really up to date on all the guidelines for diabetes mm. or for mm-hmm. asthma care or for a myriad yeah. of other illnesses that we see daily, COPD. but they, yeah. they only affect a really small percentage of the population. I know. Um, so uh, it it yeah I agree with you. It's absolutely nuts yeah. that people aren't more on board with this. I mean, I'm on some level maybe us as a society now, not nowadays, but over the years traditionally, um, played a small role in that. It wasn't uncommon for female patients to select female doctors when it came to mm. periods, babies, smears, contraception, menopause. So it's possible that some colleagues, particularly male colleagues, you know, were not given the opportunity to keep their skills up because if there was a woman in the surgery, she'd get all the the gyne stuff. And I get that. But it doesn't it doesn't excuse not being current. And like I I do tons of educational stuff. Some of it is farm sponsors sponsored, so it's completely free of charge. Some of it is you pay a small well, I think a small fee. But like the the resources are available. It's just you gotta make the time. You really have to. A lot of GPs say, Well, I don't do women's health. And I'm like, can you imagine a lady doctor saying, well, I don't do men's stuff, or you I know, don't do diabetes um, or cancer care. That, you yeah, know, it's, it's the same not allowed. Thing. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that. We'll be signing up to your um, your education <laughs> sessions, your free education sessions. Add them to the list, please, Matt. Yeah, well, I'm always the one in the back row asking Deirdre all the stupid questions. <laughs> it's great fun. It's great fun. We have an, uh, we, my very, very good friend in Nina, Brian Kennedy. He's a GP Brian in well, Tipperary. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, he we started a support group for HRT prescribers because it is nuanced. I mean, if you if you're doing a lot of it, you'll get good at it quick. But if you're not, and you run into the BNF, you're you're scuppered before you start. You have to know your stuff, and you have to know the the balance and the yin and the yang. So we said, let's do a support group for enthusiastic prescribers we started off and within about an hour and a half we had maxed out the amount of people you could have on whatsapp so we moved over to telegram so now we have like 750 active members these are all prescribing gps not entirely all in the republic of ireland because i'm seeing some queries about products that i know are only available in the uk but anyway um 
and we we answer them almost live like so if you put a question on within about three or four hours somebody will come back to you somebody knowledgeable and well respected will come back to you and say sure that's no problem do a b c d i've never seen anything i don't know that that's any other aspect of healthcare that has so much colleague support as menopause hrt care in in ireland does Myself and Kira would absolutely love to join that WhatsApp group. Oh, I see Kira jumping yeah, up yeah. and down there straight away. Yeah, I think what in, would be useful in. to do, I mean, we, we have um, questions from, from listeners, which I think sure. would be good to, to go to you on. I, I think maybe before we go there, there's a few quick fire things, which are just the commonest issues that people always ask us. I mean, Kira, the ones we come across the whole time, you know, can I have HRT if, if I have had yeah. breast cancer, which is probably the biggest yeah. one we come across, yeah, it's isn't the biggest it? biggest one. I know. Well, now, God, how long have you got? Officially, we would approach that with huge caution, particularly if the cancer you had had either estrogen or or progestogen receptors on it, because obviously there is a concern that reintroducing estrogen or progestogen, and HRT, as you know, is usually a combination of both, Mm -hmm. could have some impact on recurrence. As it happens, I've just been doing some work because that's going to take up a lot of what we do in the National Maternity Hospital. You know, the data doesn't really support that concern. But this famous Avram Blooming, who writes a lot of books about breast cancer and HRT, was saying there's 25 studies in the recent literature looking at breast cancer outcomes in people who've used HRT or some form of hormone. And the only one that ever showed a connection out of 25 was this thing called HABITS, which is an acronym for hormones after breast cancer. Is it safe? But if you actually look, the quality of that study was not ideal. There was a lot of crossover. It wasn't properly randomized. It wasn't one particular center. And it was lots of different products being used by lots of different prescribers. And the numbers involved were really tiny. Of the 220-odd women that were t- taking the HRT after breast cancer, 39 of them had local or contralateral recurrence. Of the 220-odd on the other side, 17 had local or contralateral recurrence. So the difference was actually, there was a difference, but it wasn't massive. And then, of course, they stopped the program completely. They never finished it, you know. So I would say if that's the reason why everybody with breast cancer has to avoid HRT, that we really need to ask the patients themselves what they think about that. So the current rule of thumb for prescribers is wherever possible, you should manage breast cancer patients' symptoms with non-HRT therapies. But if they don't work or if if they're not suitable or if they're not appealing for whatever reason, so long as that poor patient is within their senses. Why can't they be involved? What would stop that patient going to another doctor and saying, no, I never had breast cancer. I need some HRT. You know what I mean? So we don't want them to do that. We want them to do this under supervision, you know? So, I mean, obviously the the smart thing is until we have more research, we need to to try other products first. Now, this only applies to systemic hormones. When it comes to things like vaginal therapies, you know, the local vaginal estrogen, there's absolutely no problem. Everybody with breast cancer. In fact, their oncologists should be offering them local vaginal estrogen when they put them on tamoxifen, when they put them on aromatase inhibitors, or when they euphorectomize them, because they are going to get terrible vaginal problems in a lot of cases. So that's a no-brainer. That really is, you know. It's so um, difficult though, isn't it? When, yeah, you know. know, especially women who've previously had a breast cancer and that 
that that fear the fear is real and their oncologist has told them you yeah. must never have hrt or their yeah. gp has told and, them you must and never that's have not hrt fair to them. like who are yeah who are they to believe us or them you know what i mean it's yeah. very difficult exactly and then i understand the oncologist is is focusing on one aspect of the patient's life and health which is that tumor you know whereas we as gps are trying to make the entirety of their life what about their bones what about their hearts you know most people who get breast cancer die from heart disease so what about their hearts what are you doing to make up for the fact that you're now giving them an estrogen suppressor which is going to increase their risk of atherosclerosis you know and their answer is nothing because that's not my problem but it's our problem in general practice and it's the patient's problem so when we hear this quite a bit um i can't have it for this reason or this reason or this reason and and we know that most of those reasons that um that that patient actually can and will benefit from from hrt is there anyone who can't have hrt that categorically cannot and should not consider having hrt i would say somebody with significant and i mean significant um, cerebral or cardiovascular disease has to be very, very careful. So, you know, when you've got blocking in your arteries, the only thing that keeps those blockages stable and stops them from cracking off and giving you a heart attack or a stroke is this kind of crust that forms over it. And depending on what kind of estrogen you use and how much you give and the age of the patient, some studies have shown that you can actually have a little bit of an increase in events cardiac events like heart attack stroke that kind of a thing so i'd be very I, I wouldn't say blanket no but those patients have to be reviewed by their cardiologists definitely and particularly if they're over 60 65 because now you're getting into that zone breast cancer of course estrogen receptor po uh, positive progestogen receptor positive cancer um, patients have to be careful and obviously we have a we're trying to work on a protocol like please consider this, that, and the other first. And if you have and have been unsuccessful, then we can talk. But really, apart from that, there's nobody else. The only other thing, the only other special precautions would be people like people with blood clots. You can't use oral estrogen. You can only ever use the bioidentical estrogen because we know that has a neutral impact on future blood clots, whereas oral can actually increase clotting risk. So you have to be a creative prescriber with some diseases. Endometriosis. Endometriosis, you can take it from zero to 100 if you're not careful with how you administer the HRT. So often the British Menopause Society would say, in the event of a patient with severe endometriosis, cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, or any hormone-dependent cancer, um, please see a menopause specialist. And that's what we do. We specialize in tiptoeing in with the gentlest, safest, highest quality products so as not to undermine the health that you're enjoying at the moment. What about one of the things I, mean, I get asked a huge amount is, is I suppose women who maybe went through the menopause dear to three, four, five years ago. Um, mm. And again, they say, look, I can't go on HRT because I went through the menopause five years ago. Nah, um, that's nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. yeah. So it's a lot about age. You know, a, a woman under 60 is still relatively healthy. And I mean that from an age perspective. Obviously, some of us are basket cases and other of, others of us are running marathons. So it's a there's a big spectrum there. But 
Uh, most women would have a certain amount of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone in their blood until they're about 55, 60. And really, come 60, it sort of falls off a cliff. So to play with hormones up until that age is perfectly safe to do so. And I don't care if your last period was when, when you were 22. It's never too late to try something so long as you're healthy and you're under 60 and there's benefit to be gained from it, you know. Um, uh, the and that is nice guidelines nice guidelines says risks are outweighed by benefits so it's all about benefits until you hit about 60 and even 60 is a movable feast so like i had a woman not re too long ago who was 65 she'd been on hrt until she was 58 she loved it and somebody in their wisdom told her oh my god you're on it so long you're gonna get breast cancer you have to come off and they wouldn't prescribe anymore and she hadn't had a happy day until she came off that was seven years ago. I was like, of course, I'll put you back on, you know, because she was a young middle 60 lady who only recently had estrogen, full complement to estrogen in her blood. Now, I wasn't kind of throwing it at her. You know, we, we go in slow and low. We use only the good quality products. But um, we nice told us, and it's such a good way to practice medicine, that care should be individualized. You can't have black and white rules that apply to every patient. Each patient needs to be taken at face value. And if she was keen and if her health wasn't in such jeopardy that you are likely to do immediate harm, why not? That's the key. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess my question there then, as someone with a, a fairly rookie interest in HRT, is that, that once you reach in 60 and and beyond that and then I get what you say in this um there's mm. some pretty old 60 year olds and some very young 80 year olds so yeah. it depends it depends where yeah. you're sitting but but what you're saying is that generally speaking after the age of 60 you start to have more like cardiovascular issues yeah. that could impact and therefore the risk benefit way yeah. up is a little bit more complicated is that correct yeah, in that big study and it wasn't a great study you know the women's health initiative it was a large study so it had that going for it. But it was a pretty crap study in terms of what we do nowadays because it only looked at much, much older women. It didn't screen for current medical diseases. A lot of these people were very overweight and they'd had a bit of cardiovascular disease. It only used the horse urine estrogen, you know, Premarin estrogen. And it only used one of the strongest and potentially most harmful progestogens, like a, a pharmacologically potent progestogen called Medroxy, Provera. You know, uh, nowadays we call it Provera. You know, and they found that intervention before 60 outcomes were really good. Intervention after 60 outcomes were, were less favorable. So like I'd say nowadays, you can't even compare that data to what's happening because th throughout the world, you know, we're not using, well, I'd like to hope we're not using horses urine hormone as much nowadays as we once did, although it's still quite popular. Um, up until about three or four years ago, my buddies in, in pharma, pharma marketing, you know, they can get access to the data, like what's moving through pharmacies, what's selling. And Premarin was still quite popular, you know. Um, it works. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing as potent as Premarin, but that's because it's a cocktail of a, of a bunch of hormones so that a horse can have fertility and longevity. <laughs> Not for us, you know. So it. now we're using bioidentical estrogens, estrogens that look like E2, 17 beta estradiol, the predominant estrogen for healthy younger women. 
We're not using them orally for the most part. We're using them as patches, gels, sprays through the skin. Like you can't, it's chalk and cheese. It really is. There's, I think it's all to play for now with the is HRT. This, um, is this what you mean when you were mentioning before about using these good products, these good yeah. quality products that were coming yeah. in low and slow? Is this what you mean? You're meaning moving yes. away from the old style of HRT um, Absolutely. And, and looking towards like these topical applications, these patches and the creams yeah. and... If you can afford it, that is the way to go. The problem with us is we don't have the national health. The majority of our citizens have to pay for their medicine. Thankfully, for the most part, they are relatively affordable compared to, say, the United States, where they're prohibitive. Like, you know, people dying from diabetes because they can't afford insulin. We don't have that here, thank God. But, you know, a high-quality HRT, a month's supply of patches or gel is probably going to set you back the guts of 20, maybe more euro. And then the really high quality progestogen, the, there's only one brand of progestogen that is identical, identical molecularly to what comes out of your ovary. And it's called micronized progesterone. It is so expensive. But those of us in the know are happy to fork out the money for it because we know this is the way to go if you're going to continue supplying your body with female hormone as you age. But like a lot of people can't afford it maybe they have a medical card and their local you know gms doctor doesn't believe in it so it's very hard to shop around when you're connected to one doctor and and you, know, you don't the, the, it's, yeah. it's this is so interesting to hear because i'm someone who's always had access to um nhs and, and have moved from living being born and living in the uk to yeah. um, moving to the Alaman and having manx care and we that is not a problem that we have to face and actually I'm sitting yeah. here smiling because our women are getting the good stuff. So our women are getting yeah. micro-progesterone. Micro our women are getting... The NHS is amazing. It covers all the good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. like, um, very, very thankful for that. And I know we all have our moments where we get really frustrated with um, our NHS, with, with our local providers. Because no, you're blessed. Bits missing, we would love but, that. Yeah, we would we're love very that lucky. Here. The million dollar yeah, question I, I was going to ask you, uh, Deirdre, yeah. and it's again, just before we move on to the listeners' questions, because uh, it's the one we get asked all the time is, how long can I be on HRT for? Well, I have no intention of ever stopping. So I'm 60 now. I started when I was like 43-ish, I want to say. So a good 17 years or more at this stage. Obviously, you ch you change, you cut your cloth to suit your, you know, so your garment. So like, I wouldn't use as much estrogen now as I would have done 17 years ago, but I'm still taking my estrogen because I'm overweight. I moved off oral estrogen when I was about 55 because of the blood clot thing. And I do that. I offer that to patients. I, I recommend that. I change from an artificial progestogen to a natural progestogen. And like, I'm going to sit it out, to be honest with you. I'll see how long I go, you know. And as long as nothing arises, like, God forbid I get a breast cancer and some oncologist tries to pry my HRT out of my hand, we may have to have a discussion, you know. Get buried with a patch on your bum, still. <laughs> keeping you well. Um, so that's interesting, actually, because I think we hear sometimes, don't we, you can only have HRT for five years and some women think, that's, I've got to yeah. keep dragging myself through mm. this terrible time until I can't drag myself through it anymore because I'm only going to get five years. But actually, if you look yeah. at the nice guidelines, which we follow, no. it says, you know, use it no for arbitrary. at least five years, yeah. you know. It's and it not specifically says no arbitrary time limits should be put what the five-year nonsense came out of was, again, that old 
20-year-old Women's Health Initiative American study with the horse urine hormone and the nasty, strong Provera progestogen said that we found that there was no impact on breast cancer um, diagnosis in the first four or five years of use, and then it started to climb. But sure, breast cancer incidence goes up with age. It's an it's a breast cancer is a cancer of older women. So it's no surprise that the longer you live, the more likely your risk of being diagnosed with breast cancer is. Mm -hmm. Is that directly got to do with the fact that you've chosen to stay on HRT during all that time? Almost certainly not. And an amazing thing about those women who were diagnosed with breast cancer, who'd been on HRT for any length of time, their risk of dying from that breast cancer was lower. Mm -hmm. That's a conversation I actually have with a, a lot of my, a lot of the women that I speak to um, who worry so much about breast cancer. And then we, I talk to them about, you know, there's so many more things out there. And if you look at the things that kill women. Yeah, it's heart disease. It's heart disease. Mm -hmm. It's dementia. Yeah. You know, it's complications and broken, bones. broken mm -hmm. bones. Yeah. yeah. And and things that I, I read recently that, you know, really stuck with me. You're 50% less likely to have a heart attack if you're a woman on HRT. And you're, yeah. you're as a fairly recent Kentucky study, you're 73% less likely to have Alzheimer's if you're a woman on HRT and that is so huge isn't it yeah. you know you're, you're... Do you know that's a funny one I think dementia dementia generally and I think dependency in old age because who of us don't have a, a mother-in-law or a granny or whatever that we're visiting in the nursing home or we're getting carers coming into the house these days and a lot of us have had this we've already had this conversation me and my friends and my sisters and brothers saying like, you know, I want to, I want to plan. I, I want to have an exit strategy. I do not want to be nappied and spoon fed for the last 10 years of my life. And I think that's going to overtake breast cancer as the thing we all walk around with worrying in the back of our head about, you know, mm. sure. when I was a, a baby doctor, one of my uh, GPs who was training me, who was of the Deirdre Lundy School of Women's Health, mm. Uh, mm -hmm. I went into her and I said, look, you know, I have a, a 62 year old patient here and she's still on HR what will I do and she said to me Matt you wouldn't think twice about prescribing Viagra to an Israel would you and I said no I wouldn't there you so, go there that's you go. lovely yeah. it's and true it's analogy. true <laughs> yeah and potential for harm I would say the much HRT is much lower more absolutely yeah. yeah yeah much much lower but that was a great said, analogy away her. from that is a great analogy thanks for that I really feel you added some quality to that interview um so Away from these benefits, because like I can talk for so long about the benefits that I regularly go over my 15 minutes and consultation. Um, but recently I've had women say to me, OK, OK, so you've told me all the good stuff. Hmm. What's the bad stuff? What's my trade off? Oh, What's going to happen? plenty of bad things. Well, first of all, not everybody likes HRT. Some people are extremely sensitive to it. And I don't know, sometimes is it the hormones themselves? Is it the incipient? Is, the, is it the goop that they're delivered in? Or is it just the worry of the fact that, oh, my God, I'm taking HRT. What, what, if, what if something happens and then you, the anxiety levels go up and, and you start to feel physical symptoms through your worry? And it, but, you know, estrogen and progestogen, like, my God, they're cycle hormones. So anything that can go do lally in your cycle, you can get sore breasts, you can get nausea, you can get bloating, you can get a headache from the estrogen. You can get the same stuff from the progestogen and acne on top of it. So, you know, not everybody has a smooth sailing launch. But believe you me, if you've put up with two or three years of chronic sleep deprivation, real like kind of schizo 
mood disorder, why am I like this, undermining relationships, brain fog, aches and pains. Most people say, well, I put up with a little bit of bloating. I'll put up with a little bit of, now most of those side effects, they go away. You know what I mean? They're only short lived. But I think a lot of it depends on how bad you are when you crawl into the surgery. And if you're on your knees and I'm like, here, this is probably going to make you feel better. Um, you'll be putting up with a certain amount of minor side effects, you know. Got you. That's that's really interesting. Thank you. So mm. that we're again back to the weight weighing up, aren't we? But like you just said mm. before, that the people who come in to talk about it have often uh, they don't come in because they started getting no. symptoms this no. week. Mm. They're, they're people. They're women no. who just feel really at the end of their their yeah. ability. It's to torture. I mean, I, like I recently, um, I'm not sure 100 why I'd been trying to be very good about eating well and getting good sleep and all the rest. I've been like, let that slide since Christmas naturally. And um, I've been getting more night flushes, even on HRT. I, like the, it, the HRT doesn't completely omit every symptom. It just makes them totally bearable. But recently I've noticed I'm wake, I'm awakening once or twice a night in a, in a flood of sweat. Um, and that'll pass. It's just episodic. But I'm thinking to myself, God, I remember this time. I remember this happening 10 times a night mm. and then trying to crawl through the day afterwards, day after day, night after night. Like it really is utter torture. I don't know how women cope. I really don't. <laughs> Going back the other way, like it was not uncommon when little girls would come in 10, 11, 12, get in their first period, doubled over in pain on the sofa, three days a month, hot water bottle, eating all the proof. And we'd be like, oh, but sure, that's just natural. That's your cycle, sweetheart. Mm. And now, as a GP, you should be slapped in the head if you don't do something mm. to help that kid go through this horrible phase of their life. And now, like, so that's changed a lot. And now we wouldn't dream. We would happily prescribe, you know, hormonal, like I prescribed a pill to kids of 10 and 11 sometimes when because it's licensed and supported to do so when their period disruption is affecting their life to whatever level they feel is unacceptable not me mm -hmm. them and we would say the same about menopause if you're happy if you think you can cope with your menopause without medical intervention rock and roll but if you're not happy that's what we're here for but it's a societal thing. I mean, I had a, a conversation last week again with somebody who's coming from menopause and I was like, you know, what's your sex life like? Which I'm very comfortable asking. And like, oh, I've not yeah. in, in years. And I was like, <laughs> but that's not normal. You, you know what I mean? And yeah. they're like, well, look, yeah. I'm, if you're going to give me my sex life back, I'm very happy to put up with the bloating or whatever. But it's a societal oh, yeah. thing is that this kind of expectation that once you've hit 45, you know, you, you, you give up your sex life, your libido goes, it's normal to have all of these things. But I think as a society, I think women are starting to understand, actually, no, that's not normal. And that's yeah. the conversation that we're having, which is mental in 2022, that it's taken this long. But I think that's what's changing. Now. I agree. I also think that Ireland as a society has kind of grown up only in the last 30 years or so in that we now have legal divorce. People are setting up new relationships and new families yeah. in midlife. We have legal termination. So people have the ultimate control over their fertility. Mm. We have, you know, contraception. Well, we've pretty much always had contraception. But, you know, um, even that we've made steps to in the next, hopefully in the next year or two, we'll have free contraception for 17 to 25 year olds, you know. So like as a society, we've changed. And it's quite common for women to come into me now, 45, 50, 55, saying, you know, 
like with my husband, I wasn't that pushed. But with the new fella, I need my vagina in prime working condition. And that is key. That is hugely important. <laughs> and again, know? if the few was the other foot, if that was a man, you know, we just wouldn't put up with it, honestly. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you know, it actually makes me think about sisterhood a little bit there as well, because yeah. if we had this conversation more as women, you know, we're, we're pretty good at talking, but maybe we're missing out on something here because we're not having that conversation. We're not talking about um, the difficulties that women are facing as they age with um discomfort you know vaginal discomfort is is a yeah. is a huge issue and it's not it's not just an issue in sex it's an issue if, if you want to ride your bike or wear some jeans yeah. or go horse riding um it's an issue Absolutely. if you feel like you 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 can't go for your next smear because sure. the last one was so painful that actually happens a lot We've noticed that the numbers of women over 50 attending for routine smears has gone right through the floor, partly because yeah. of COVID. But the other part is that, you know, if you have a wicked painful smear, you are no one, not going back for another one. Exactly. And that starts to happen for the first time for some women, not all, obviously, as they go into their menopause, because with a longer term estrogen deprivation, the walls of the vagina just become like two pieces of sandpaper. They just don't move the way they used to move. There's also another um, aspect of aging and vaginal health, and it has more to do with your urethra. So it's quite common for people who are not continent and maybe living in nursing homes to end up being hospitalized over and over again with what turns out to be a urinary tract infection because they're sitting in a wet nappy for a couple hours sometimes. They're finding now, studies have shown, that if you put a little dab of estrogen cream around the vulva, not every day necessarily, but just from time to time, it improves the integrity of the urethral meatus, you know, the, the opening that you pee through, so that you don't get as much ascending germs. And the number of hospitalizations of elder women mm. who are in care are starting to come down with the use of topical estrogen. Topical estrogen should be over the counter. That's well, wild, it is now. It? That, I mean, that's really wild for, for any healthcare, yeah. um, healthcare practitioners that are listening along. Yeah. None of us are going to forget the no. first time we met a lady hospitalized with UTI. But oh, no, but I mean, one of the keys from this is that we can fix your vagina and there's literally no downside to yes, it. I mean, Vagifem is one of my favorite products. I offer it to everyone because yeah. there is literally no downside to it. Again, no, the it issue should be is on. The, it should be over the counter. There's no question. About no, the, the issue is, though, is I suppose is I suppose uh, is, is first of all, broaching that conversation, but for actually <laughs> patients to bring it up because they still are quite slow to talk about that. I find I find Still nowadays, I, I bring it up more than the patients do. Maybe that's because I'm a man and maybe they bring it up more with you, Kira. But I still find I'm asking yeah. people more than they're volunteering. Yeah. I don't know. I think we're still a little, sorry, I'm cutting into you there, but I think we're still, we're a little um, circumspect when it comes to that. And if you're in a, if you're in a same sex consultation, maybe you'd be more inclined. You would worry that we, maybe the, uh, the male doctor might judge you if you start given out about your vagina i don't know i don't know i don't know i'm sure somebody has studied that but i have no idea what the attitudes are so my i'm within my role and i do cervical uh screening so i see um women who um have been clearly dodging having their smear done you know and you can see yeah. that they've been called and recalled and recalled and they've declined and they've declined and you can have that conversation and that 
yeah, admitting that actually that was so painful. And they don't want to yeah. admit it because why would you want to admit that something that was, you know, not a huge deal actually has really made such a terrible impact on them for years and years that they can't yeah. bring themselves to go back. And it's such an easy fix. Like you just said, you can use that um, topical application, a pessary that you can put in. You can use that for three weeks or 12 weeks mm-hmm. if you really need to. And, and I mean, yeah. you can use it forever. forever. Yeah. But let's just you really get you in the right, in, the, in, in shape just, for having your smear and it's yeah. not to be so awful. You know, you know, the sad thing about the vagina relative to the other symptoms of menopause is most people, by the time they're in their, at least their by early to mid 60s, the worst of the hormone fluctuant symptoms, the flushes, the sweats, the mood uh, vulnerability, usually balance out because there's no more hormonal changes because there ain't no hormone at all in there. But what never gets better is vaginal health. And if you have vaginal issues in your 50s or your early 60s, you're going to have them worse in your 70s and your 80s. So if anybody needs vagina estrogen like now, they should have a recurring on indefinite prescription written for them or like in the UK now, thankfully, over the counter, because that problem is not going to it's not a matter of treated and it gets better. No, it's a chronic condition. You have to use the medicine regularly. Will we go to uh, listeners' questions to see what interesting questions they've brought up? How do I know if it's the menopause, as opposed to me, just be a tired and grumpy cow? Can both be dealt with in the same way, or do we need to differentiate, or do I just need a personality transplant? (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Well, the answer is there is no blood test to confirm whether or not your symptoms are related to the menopause. So the word menopause means the last day of the last menstrual period, but we don't really use that word that way. We mean all the different symptoms that can affect the woman when her hormone um, levels are starting to become unreliable and then slowly starting to decline. That's really the perimenopause. And symptoms like flushes and sweats, sleep disruption, moodiness, brain fog, irritability, joint pains, vagina changes, they're all part of it. So if somebody comes in and says, I just have really bad flushing, but nothing else. I mean, they could have thyroid issues. They could have a pheochromocytoma. I mean, it's unlikely, but it's possible it's something else. But if a patient comes in and they have ticking boxes off of that big list of menopause symptoms, sure, what the heck else is it going to be? But sometimes to diagnose it, what we do is we do a trial of therapy. So we say, look, for the next six to eight weeks, I want you to try some daily steady hormone supplement see what your symptoms get up to when you're on this stuff. And if you come back to me and say, oh my God, I should have done this years ago, there's your diagnosis. How, as a male line manager, should you approach the subject with a female employee if you think it may be affecting their performance slash behavior? Is it easier for a woman to speak to another woman about it? Hmm, That's a really good question. Well, first of all, I am not a HR person. In fact, I'm really politically incorrect and I sometimes have to be minded when I do media. So I don't know that I'm the best person to answer that question, but I would say that, you know, it's a medical condition. So if you had, I don't know, say if you had bipolar disorder or if you had some other medical condition that was affecting your relationships and work and your performance and work, it would be perfectly reasonable for your manager or HR to have a word with you and say, listen, we're really concerned about you. And we just think it wouldn't be a bad idea to go and talk to somebody and let me know if you're open to that, we could try to facilitate that for you. 
that's as much that's as supportive as you can be almost every day i have a headache just on the forehead between my eyes and it disturbs my eyesight no painkiller will help what would you suggest okay well headache can be a symptom of menopause but in isolation with no other menopausal symptoms i'd say go and get your brain scanned because um headaches are dodgy like it's probably just a sinus thing or one of these other sort of weird random headache things but um you know you can't just keep throwing hrt at every symptom that every middle-aged woman comes in with because one of these days someone's going to actually have a brain tumor and you're going to miss it playing games with hrt so what do we say about headaches sudden first worst must be evaluated now daily chronic headache it sounds like it's probably either stress or sinuses but a little bit of investigation on non-menopause stuff would be valid in that lady's situation yeah definitely i think um mm. Sometimes within our NHS remit, going straight to brain scan is a bit of a toffee. I know. Um, but I, know. I would definitely say go and see your general practitioner, go see your practice nurse, get, oh, your, get your blood pressure checked, get your eyes tested. Yeah. Go down the opticians. But, uh, yeah, I think what would happen there in reality would be you'd sit down with your doctor and they go through a whole lot of symptoms. And if your yeah. your, uh, your symptom was an isolated headache, I think I think we'd all agree probably not a not mm. a, a menopause thing and something we no. need to, to look mm. at separately from that. Yeah. And I think that raises a good point of that sometimes uh, people attribute lots of symptoms to the menopause that aren't. But as you were saying, Deirdre, there's no harm in doing a trial of treatment and call it after oh, no. three months. And oh, no. Um, like it's not uncommon when someone comes in and they say like I have a headache and it's probably happens to you as well that you say, um, well, how's your sleep? Oh, it's awful. And, you know, when you start to ask them direct questions, you realize, well, the headache is only one of about 14 other things that are going on, but they're not worried about the other 13. They're only worried about the headache. Yeah. But in fact, it is a package deal and it does sound like it could be perimenopause. Why don't we try something? But you would always have that little you know, cursor in the back of your head thinking, I got to watch that headache, just make sure it's not something more sinister. What treatments can you take for perimenopause then? Is it different to uh, no. what you would take with menopause? No. And how do you know when you're actually transitioning between the two? Yeah, so the medicines generally are the same. So everybody who's got symptoms needs estrogen. That is that is the core hormone. People with wounds need progestogen to protect the lining of the womb from the estrogen. So if you've been hysterectomized, you don't need progestogen, you just take the estrogen. And really the only thing that's different in how we treat the symptoms is if you're menopausal, meaning you no longer make eggs, you no longer have natural periods, we give you the progestogen every night. If you're perimenopausal, meaning you do still occasionally pop the egg out here or there, you do still occasionally have a, a spontaneous period, we give you the progestogen in a cyclical fashion, a couple of days on, a couple of days off, two weeks on, two weeks off. That's the only thing that's different in the treatment. It's still estrogen, estrogen, estrogen. Is there mm -hmm. any difference uh, going through the menopause for women who have not had children? Um, well, just less, like less hassle in their house, I would say, but not in their symptoms, no. There are some things that impact age at menopause. Um, gen genetics is the first one. So ask your mom, ask your aunties what their experiences was or were, I should say. Um, uh, smoking and, and obesity apparently bring on more profound symptoms, sometimes at a younger age. But childbearing apparently has no impact on that. Joints and muscle aches I experience every day. My bones are cracking when I get out of bed. Is there any herbal remedies I could take? 
Poor woman. She sounds like she's on her last nerve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can take all the herbal remedies you like. They're not going to make a damn bit of difference, said to tell you that um, the joint pains generally tie in with things like skin. It's a collagen-based problem. So a lot of women notice everything hurts for the first time ever when they get into their menopausal symptom phase of their life. And it's because estrogen is a really big driver for collagen integrity, collagen production. And without estrogen or with fluctuant estrogen, collagen levels really decline. And you see it in your skin, your fingernails, your hair, but you really feel it in your joints. Now, if you have a terrible diet and you don't eat broad ranges of fruits and vegetables and proteins and fibers and what have you, then maybe a multivitamin wouldn't be a bad idea, but is it going to fix collagen deprivation? No. Whereas estrogen supplementation helps promote collagen formation and um, often we, we find that people get, they didn't even know that the aches and pains were related to the menopause and they only notice coincidentally when they go on their HRT that those symptoms are getting better too. What help and support can my GP give? Well, it's all about GP. Like even in the UK where they have a network of British menopause approved specialists, it, they're not in every town. It can take 12 months to get an appointment. It's all about general practice. Um, and, and like the last 20 years notwithstanding, prior to 2002, it was all happening in general practice. We only had one or two products. They were all tablets. Most of them were made from horse's urine. And everybody in general practice knew that if a woman came in and said, I don't feel good, and it sounded like menopause, this is what you did. So what has happened is in the last 20 years, the demand went down, the skill set went down. But meanwhile, the products got better and better. So there's this real disconnect between what's out there, what's available, and the knowledge base in primary care. But that is changing, thank God. And I'd say in the next two to three years, um, like a, a, my friend, her, her kid's in medical school at the moment, second year, and he they were talking about the menopause uh, as an undergraduate. So I think that narrative has really changed and will continue to do so. Um, pills or patches, Deirdre? So I'm a huge fan of the patches just because I think mm. they're so simple. But yeah, I mean, would you be saying it, it, it's it's well, half doesn't one have to do the other? Or what it's, you... it's a, it depends on their pocket because pills are always cheaper. You know, there's lots of oral estrogens that are standalone or blended in with a nice quality progestogen, like a good progestogen, one I'd be proud to take myself. And you can get away with like seven, eight euros a month with that. So if you have someone who's really struggling with symptoms, is generally quite fit and healthy, isn't overweight smoking, you know, isn't at risk of blood clots, high risk of blood clots, and they, and they prefer the idea of a tablet. I would say, of course, prescribe a tablet. But if you have people who are lucky enough to be able to afford a price tag of about 20 plus a month for HRT, who want the best. And, you know, a lot of patients will come in and say, I want HRT. I want to talk to you about it. But I definitely want the body identical or the bio, what they call the bioidentical. We're talking patches, patches, gels. That, that's the only way to get 17 beta estrogen dial into the blood it doesn't work through your stomach mm. yeah so patches <laughs> i'm a huge yeah, fan of patches. The patches and the benefit patches of the, the nhs yeah the, the benefit of the nhs yeah. is that um they're free yeah Thankfully. if you can get them and this is a big problem joe duffy has a lot to answer for so what happened was <laughs> gps all over ireland were being inundated with requests for hrt god bless most of them were trying to facilitate and help the prescri prescribing um habits 
started to change overnight. So then everything started to run short. So we, we flip and flop. And so I, we couldn't get any Everell Conti for a while. So I said, okay, put everybody on Estragel and Utro or something. And then the girl from Estragel said, we've run out because the, everyone who couldn't get their patch changed over to the gel. So they're just going to have to up their ante, the pharmaceutical companies, and just embrace the fact that HRT is, is um, buzzing at the moment. You mentioned um, horses urine. Does that mean that all the products are animal based? And if that's the case, uh, are there any vegan options? No, only that one, only that old, old school kind of, um, you know, um, most product, most uh, HRT comes from raw estrogen product that's derived from Mexican yam, this huge, big it's this black yam head that they get mostly in Central America. Um, and that's where you get your 17 beta estradiol from. Now, they can synthesize that in the lab without actually having to use a physical yam. So it's easier to produce the stuff. But only the Premarin products, Premarin Prempact, um, are produced from animal products. I actually talk about this quite a lot with women because mm. there is that chat of like um, what, what natural... What things can I take that are natural, naturally derived? And uh, and I'm like, hey, your estrogen comes from It yams, is natural. You know? Yeah, that's pretty natural. Yeah. Listen, I... you know, natural don't mean good. Like hemlock is natural, uh, you know. <laughs> Many poisons grow naturally in the wild. That doesn't mean they're good for you. So to me, natural is a, is a loaded term. I think people think natural is better for you and safer. Mm. And that is not necessarily the truth. Deirdre, testosterone and libido, which is a little bit of a complex topic, but that is something that we can do. So if if, if, yeah. if low libido is a big thing, sure. testosterone is, is safe to use, isn't it? Well, of course it is. So going back to just the biology of it, the, the female ovary is responsible for a, a lot of hormones, five, six, eight hormones. But the three principal ones are the collection of estrogens that she makes, the progesterone. It only makes one kind of progestogen, progesterone, but it makes four different kinds of male hormone, androgens. So actually makes, there's more, there's an abundance of male hormone in women. Um, obviously the estradiol predominates, but there are lots of testosterones, uh, testosterone and testosterone derivatives in the blood of women. And when they go through the menopause, particularly when they go through the menopause young, they really miss them. Now, at the moment, testosterone replacement is only licensed in both the United Kingdom, excuse me, and the Republic of Ireland for low libido. But women who've used it for that purpose have often said to me, my God, my cognitive, you know, my abilities are improving at work. I think I'm more productive. My joints are more comfortable. My exercise tolerance is better. So even though it's not officially tested for those purposes. A lot of people who do choose to use testosterone in addition to the estrogen and the progesterone find that it can definitely improve libido, sex drive, but it definitely helps with other symptoms as well. And there's really very few people who can't try it because unless you've got a testosterone secreting tumor in your body, which is highly unlikely, there's no reason why you couldn't try a little testosterone from if you wanted to. I would love to know about the best vitamins and natural supplements to help deal with moods and tiredness. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever it is, drop it in a bottle of wine because that's the only way you're getting help with mood and tiredness from a vitamin. That ain't going to work. I mean, literally, of 
all the tests of all the supplements and, and you know, natural products, sage, black cohort, St. John's Wort, all the rest of it. Even though there might be some little benefit, it's tiny and it's not better than what they call the placebo effect. So if you take two groups of people and you give them identical tablets, one of them has vitamins and supplements in it, one just is nothing, powder, the improvement is the same in both groups. It breaks my heart. You know what annoys me? Uh, but this I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but you know, there are people out there making money off of menopausal women, selling them very expensive vitamin mineral supplements with meno written into the name of the product, which we know does not actually have benefit over placebo. I'm not saying that an individual person mightn't say, oh, I felt better on them. And God bless them if they do. I don't care. But what I'm saying is there's no science to back it up. You know that and you are making money. I, I Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm seeing more as well is like um, finger prick blood tests. Oh, and, yeah. You know, there's, there's a whole myriad of different blood tests that you can get privately that I can't see the benefit there at all and no. I just think you no uh, it's exploitation you, I think it's exploitation isn't it strange that there's um there's some people really eager to make money from menopause but there's not a huge amount of money being put into menopause research and yeah. that you know there's so much money to actually be made helping women you'd yeah. think that there'd be so many different um so many different trials on the go and that um that drug companies would be really fighting over getting the best product. I think that's like... going to change. I actually think you'll find part of it was recruitment. Like when the when the narrative was going around that breast cancer was being could be caused by you using HRT, you couldn't get big countries enrolling. Most of the studies we have are look back observational things because women wouldn't sign up. But I think you're going to find in the next 5, 10, 15 years, women will be banging down the door saying, we want the data. We want the information for our daughters, for our younger sisters, for our granddaughters. We want to participate in ongoing research, randomized, double-blind controlled um, trials so that the best outcomes can be identified for our progeny. Like, I think that might change. What is the difference between perimenopause and menopause? How long on average does each phase take? Yeah, so we kind of we kind of went through that already. So generally, until you're about 40, 45, the normal symphonic cycle of estrogen, progesterone, luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone, and all the other players is doing their job. And then usually around your early to mid 40s, it starts having episodes during which it gets kind of noisy. It's just not as pretty as it once was, that's perimenopause. And that can start quite young. You know, it's unacceptable for it to start before 40. If you're getting menopause symptoms before 40, that is a disease. That's called premature ovarian insufficiency. And you need to get yourself to a POI specialist, menopause specialist, or an endocrinologist. But anywhere from 40 onward, the game can start to change. And a lot of women will have times when they get classic symptoms, but then they resolve all by themselves, no treatment. And you're like, 
Jesus, did I imagine that? What was that? And then, but then they can come back a couple of months, a couple of years later. That's perimenopause. And that can go on for a decade or more. And then menopause is when the natural levels of ovarian hormone have literally bottomed out. A woman over 60 has less estrogen in her blood than her teenage grandson. And that is menopause. But you're, you can still be symptomatic. I mean, usually a lot of the symptoms will actually start to ease off at that point, but not all of them. My question is about the benefits and risks of HRT. Are there any natural remedies that can assist with menopause symptoms, such as low mood and weight gain? Um, we'll do the natural remedies for low mood. So, you know, yeah, is the answer. St. John's wort is a traditional mood drug. Uh, unfortunately, it's a very powerful liver enzyme inducer. So we have to be careful because it undermines uh, other medicines that you might really need, like epilepsy drugs and certain breast cancer drugs and things like that. So there are non-pharmaceuticals, if you like, that will help with that stuff. But, um, you know, I would consider HRT a natural product, to be honest with you, because the molecules of hormone that we typically use, if you can afford them, the good stuff, uh, or if you're blessed to have NHS cover, those are natural molecules. 17-beta estradiol is a natural estrogen. Progesterone is a natural progestogen. Um, yeah, why not? And then are there, what are the risks and benefits? Well, you know, it's, they're both as long as your arm, but it generally has to be weighed up for each individual patient. So if you meet somebody who's just vaguely unwell, but not particularly struggling, but, and she's no worries with regard to her future bone, heart, brain health, and she just wanted to play with some HRT, we would say, listen, for you, that's no problem. But, you know, you do put yourself at a tiny risk if you take the estrogen orally of getting a blood clot in the next six months to a year. So with that knowledge, maybe the benefits would be better for you if you were to use the estrogen through the skin or something like that. We would have that conversation with every woman, giving them the choices and options. Risks, there are very few risks. Because remember, you got to think all we're doing with a perimenopausal woman, patient, I should say, is balancing a hormone that is already in her blood. So how is that putting her at risk as such? It's only as you get older when normally the levels of estrogen would be very, very low and you're going to maintain them um, through medication. Then the, 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 the seesaw might tip a little bit toward the risk, but only for certain women under certain circumstances. It's very hard to give a blanket answer to that question. Mm, and we, we do keep seeing that theme of um, what can I take that is natural and, you know, mm. what, what, what are my natural alternatives? And, and as you said, there are some things to look at there, but you will be also missing out on the protective quality sure. of the HRT there as well in the and sure. that's a big deal hey? ultimately and, and you gotta be, natural. yeah and, exactly. yeah and you gotta be careful I'll tell you something you really have to be careful because I've met with and heard of many women who've been diagnosed with estrogen or progesterone receptor tumor breast cancer or positive breast cancer who have in desperation themselves gone to over-the-counter what are, are are marketed as natural remedies, but in fact, some of them have can have a little bit of estrogen activation in the blood. Now, I don't think there's going to be any actual negative outcome for their breast cancer with those products, but just because something's available without a prescription doesn't mean it's gentler, safer, better. 
What can we do in the workplace to make life easier for anyone suffering symptoms? I guess there's the easy practical things like desk fans for our flushes, but for the mental impact, such as mood swings, anxiety, difficulty concentrating, etc. It can be much harder to know how best to help. I don't know. I mean, obviously you need to have an environment. You need everyone's individual environment to be adjusted individually. Like these kind of hothouse offices when people used to hot desk and then you know, the room would be kept at a certain temperature and you couldn't open the windows. Like, that's not acceptable. You can't live like that. There was a lady that rang into Joe Duffy who worked as a transit cop in the subway in New York, but she was from somewhere in Ireland. And they have to wear a 20-pound gun belt around their waist. She had really bad um, urinary frequency, which is another not uncommon menopausal symptom and very heavy menstrual bleeding. So she was changing her tampons and towels every hour or so. Um, for 10 days a month. And they had a rule that said, you can't go to the toilet with the gun belt because if there's a gap above or below the toilet door, someone could steal the gun belt off the, off the hook. So you must wear the gun belt around your neck while you're sitting on the toilet. And I had a visual of this poor woman trying to change a tampon with a 20 pound gun belt around her neck on you know, straddling a public toilet seat because there's nobody likes to sit on a tub public toilet seat. And I just thought, there's not a lot of sensitivity in that workplace. Ultimately, I think the answer to that question is you ask the individual woman what you can do to help of them because no two women are the same as we know. And what do you need? Exactly. Like, what do you need from me? Like, uh, let yeah. me help. I want you happy. If you're not happy, you're not going to be productive. Also, you know, be proactive. Get a uh, policy in place mm. for your... Uh, perimenopausal menopausal workers you know we're seeing women leaving the workplace because of their menopause because they're perimenopausal women leaving the workplace at 50 as i think it's something like one in five women crazy leaving the workplace at 50 because of menopause symptoms and that's a workforce who've got so much knowledge like experience and like yeah that that, if that's not incentive enough the money that you're going to lose from losing these great workers you know then then yeah what? yeah well 45 to 55 are probably the prime menopause symptom years i would say you know obviously it's a it's a bell curve probably but like these are women who've finally started to work in their industry with school going kids so for the most part they've been able to dedicate as much of their daytime as they could to their job uh, they have so much to offer so much to give and here we are they're at now all of a sudden this come and hits them in the back of the head. And, and I'm not saying everybody should be on HRT, not at all, but I'm saying uh, as a society, we need to support those women in their 45 to 55 age group. Because like, if you look at numbers, not just of job, people changing jobs or leaving jobs, but even suicide for women is very high in that decade. And you'd wonder if there's a connection there. If we suspect a staff member is suffering How can we approach the subject without being offensive or intrusive? I don't know. I mean, I don't know know what you say to that. What do you do with anybody who's going through like a medical condition? Mm, You know, if they want to talk. Yeah, you just be empathetic and and say, look, if you need me, I'm here. Mm. Um, But you can't make somebody talk to you. And a lot of women are a little bit shy about talking menopause and i'm not just talking about vagina stuff i mean a lot of people are embarrassed about the flushes and sweats they maybe they don't even know what it is sometimes we assume everyone has access to the internet everybody watched davina mccall you know we think the whole world knows menopause but maybe they don't know 
Are there any supportive groups you can join? Yeah, so there's loads of groups, thank God, you know, and that's part of the reason why I think menopause has become more vocal and visible in the last few years is women are, are gathering online for the most part, sharing stories, co comparing interactions with general practice and gynecology and saying, this is acceptable, this is garbage, don't put up with this, you know. So in Ireland, we've loads of places, like I mentioned that lady on Instagram, Sally Ann Brady, She's very popular. In the United Kingdom, the British Menopause Society has a patient arm called the Women's Health Concern, and they host a lot of events online, and they have loads of online information that you can read. Uh, there's a lovely book, Kathy Abernathy. She's a recent past president of the British Menopause Society. She's a nurse um, practitioner, and she wrote a great book in really kind of clean word, very simple terminology, just to help people understand what menopause is, what's happening to them, and what their options are. Um, I think the United Kingdom probably has a, a much bigger um, support for workplace menopause than anywhere else in the world I've seen, maybe Australia, but apart from, like, they're amazing. So there's loads of um, online resources available for managers and people who are struggling with menopause symptoms themselves in their work environment. Thanks, Amin. I mean, is there anything else before we let you go that you think is key that we haven't discussed, Deirdre, that you think it's important for people to be aware of? I mean, I think we've discussed most things, but you think... Yeah, I think if you're in the NHS and, you know, it's it's like you're it's like having a medical card in that you're registered with a practice. Yeah. And if your NHS doctor doesn't have menopause knowledge, and you'll know because you can always email and say, is there anybody in there who's connected with the British Menopause Society? Mm. And if they say no... You need to get a second opinion. Don't go crazy. Don't spend hundreds and hundreds of pounds on um, private health care. But you definitely need someone who has menopause training mm. because the, 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 you know, it's not like thyroid. You, you feel tired. You, you go to the doctor. He says, oh, I'll check your thyroid. Oh, look, your thyroid's underactive. Here's some L-troxin. It's not like that. Mm. You really do need to have some training around menopause. Mm, so don't be afraid to ask and don't be embarrassed to ask is the main one. The no, doctors won't be no. offended. I know as a, as a, as a no. male GP, I would not be offended if somebody wanted a second opinion. Mm, not at all. Thanks. Like if someone Dr. says to me, I feel like, um, sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah, I just wanted on. to say, I feel like I've learned so much um, just listening to you. It's been, um, um, your, your energy is fantastic and you yeah. just make a topic that's not talked about enough, just... Um, more accessible already just just from having that conversation with you and and hearing that expert opinion it's just been um eye-opening for me and, uh, and i think for people that are listening be it's, it's a really good listen so thank you Super. so much for uh, you're very your welcome time. it was a pleasure and i'll be in the audience um, of your next lecture very soon as always asking the <laughs> stupid questions <laughs>